Do you like the Tales from the Crypt? Do you love the Tales from the Crypt? Even if you've never seen an episode, this podcast is for you. I'm Melissa, your ghostess with the mostest, and host of the Good Evening Kitties podcast. Each week, I break down another great episode from the TV series The Tales from the Crypt. Audio clips are included, so even if you haven't watched that episode, you're good to go. There are also special guests, trivia, mini-movie reviews, and much more. What are you waiting for? Check out the Good Evening Kitties podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Good Evening Kitties podcast. Check it out today. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. You're not new to the show. You know who they are and what they do. Slippers, novelty shirts from your favorite cult films. Yeah. Okay. This is a reading episode. Next episode should be a full episode, unless there's another reading episode. So, thank you for listening to PGTTCM. Go to us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, where you can find our patron button to help, I don't know, support the show. You can also go to paypal.me slash pgttcm. And uh, why not go to audibletrials.com slash pgttcm? Sign up for Audible. Get a free book. We get something. You get something. It's all good. And enough for ads. And how about edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is part of the Dark Myths Collective, and you can find out more about Dark Myths and all their many, many podcasts by going to darkmyths.org. I'd like to recommend Blurry Photos with David Flora. You can find them at blurryphotos.org. And it is a podcast about the unexplained and the unexplored. They've got a vast library to listen to, and it's a lot of fun. All right, on with the show. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath by H.P. Lovecraft, Part 1. Three times Randolph Carter dreamed of the marvelous city, And three times was he snatched away, while still he paused on the high terrace above it. All golden and lovely it blazed in the sunset, with walls, temples, colonnades, and arched bridges of veined marble, silver-basined fountains of prismatic spray in broad squares and perfumed gardens, and wide streets marching between delicate trees and blossom-laden urns and ivory statues in gleaming rows, while on steep northward slopes climbed tiers of red roofs and old peaked gables harboring little lanes of grassy cobbles. It was a fever of the gods, a fanfare of supernal trumpets, and a clash of immortal cymbals. Mystery hung about it, as clouds about a fabulous unvisited mountain. And as Carter stood breathless and expectant on that balustrated parapet, there swept up to him the poignancy and suspense of almost vanished memory, the pain of lost things, and the maddening need to place again what once had been an awesome and momentous place. 
He knew that for him its meaning must once have been supreme. Though in what cycle or incarnation he had known it, or whether in dream or waking, he could not tell. Vaguely, it called up glimpses of a far-forgotten first youth, when wonder and pleasure lay in all the mystery of days, and dawn and dusk alike strode forth prophetic to the eager sound of lutes and song, unclosing fiery gates toward further and surprising marvels. But each night, as he stood on that high marble terrace with the curious urns and carven rail, and looked off over that hushed sunset city of beauty and unearthly imminence, he felt the bondage of dreams' tyrannous gods. For in no wise could he leave that lofty spot or descend the wide marmoreal flights flung endlessly down to where those streets of elder witchery lay outspread and beckoning. When, for the third time, he awakened with those flights still undescended and those hushed sunset streets still untraversed, he prayed long and earnestly to the hidden gods of dream that brood capricious above the clouds on unknown Kadath, in the cold waste where no man treads. But the gods made no answer and showed no relenting nor did they give any favoring sign when he prayed to them in dream and invoked them sacrificially through the bearded priests of Nasht and Kamantha, whose cavern temple with its pillar of flame lies not far from the gates of the waking world. It seemed, however, that his prayers must have been adversely heard, for after even the first of them he ceased wholly to behold the marvelous city, as if his three glimpses from afar had been mere accidents or oversights and against some hidden plan or wish of the gods. At length, sick with longing for those glittering sunset streets and cryptical hill lanes among ancient tiled roofs, nor able, sleeping or waking, to drive them from his mind, Carter resolved to go with bold entreaty whither no man had gone before and dare the icy deserts through the dark to where unknown Kadath, veiled in cloud and crowned with unimagined stars, holds secret and nocturnal the onyx castle of the Great Ones. In light slumber, he descended the seventy steps to the cavern of flame and talked of his design to the bearded priests Nasht and Kamantha. And the priests shook their shent-bearing heads and vowed it would be the death of his soul. They pointed out that the Great Ones had shown already their wish and that it is not agreeable to them to be harassed by insistent pleas. They reminded him, too, that not only had no man ever been to Kadath, but no man had ever suspected in what part of space it may lie, whether it be in the dreamlands around our own world or in those surrounding some unguessed companion of Fomalhaut or Aldebaran. If in our dreamland, it might conceivably be reached, but only three human souls since time began had ever crossed and recrossed the black impious gulfs to other dreamlands, 
and of those three, two had come back quite mad. There were in such voyages incalculable local dangers, as well as that shocking final peril which gibbers unmentionably outside the ordered universe where no dreams reach. The last amorphous blight of neithermost confusion which blasphemes and bubbles at the center of all infinity. The boundless demon sultan Azathoth, whose names no lips dare speak aloud, and who gnaws hungrily in inconceivable unlighted chambers beyond time amidst the muffled maddened beating of vile drums and the thin monotonous whine of accursed flutes, to which detestable pounding and piping dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly, the gigantic ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, tenebrous, mindless other gods, whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos, Nyarlathotep. Of these things was Carter warned by the priests Nasht and Kamantha in the Cavern of Flame. But still he resolved to find the gods on unknown Kadath in the cold waste, wherever that might be, and to win from them the sight and remembrance and shelter of the marvelous Sunset City. He knew that his journey would be strange and long, and that the Great Ones would be against it. But being old in the land of dream, he counted on many useful memories and devices to aid him. So, asking a formal blessing of the priests, and thinking shrewdly on his course, he boldly descended the seven hundred steps to the gate of deeper slumber, and set out through the enchanted wood. In the tunnels of that twisted wood, whose low prodigious oaks twine groping boughs, and shine dim with the phosphorescence of strange fungi, dwell the furtive and secretive Zugs who know many obscure secrets of the dream world and a few of the waking world, since the wood, at two places, touches the lands of men, though it would be disastrous to say where. Certain unexplained rumors, events, and vanishments occur among men where the Zugs have access, and it is well that they cannot travel far outside the world of dreams. But over the nearer parts of the dream world, they pass freely, flitting small and brown and unseen, and bearing back piquant tales to beguile the hours around their hearths in the forest they love. Most of them live in burrows, but some inhabit the trunks of the great trees. And although they live mostly on fungi, it is muttered that they have also a slight taste for meat, either physical or spiritual. For certainly many dreamers have entered that wood who have not come out. Carter, however, had no fear, for he was an old dreamer and had learnt their fluttering language and made many a treaty with them, having found through their help the splendid city of Caliphias in Uthnargai beyond the Tanarian hills, where reigns half the year the great King Kuranes, a man he had known by another name in life. 
Karanis, was the one soul who had been to the star gulfs and returned free from madness. Threading now the low phosphorescent aisles between those gigantic trunks, Carter made fluttering sounds in the manner of the Zugs and listened now and then for responses. He remembered one particular village of the creatures was in the center of the wood, where a circle of great mossy stones in what was once a clearing tells of older and more terrible dwellers long forgotten. And toward this spot he hastened. He traced his way by the grotesque fungi which always seem better nourished as one approaches the dread circle where elder beings danced and sacrificed. Finally, the great light of those thicker fungi revealed a sinister green and gray vastness pushing up through the roof of the forest and out of sight. This was the nearest of the great ring of stones, and Carter knew he was close to the Zug village. Renewing his fluttering sound, he waited patiently, and was at last rewarded by an impression of many eyes watching him. It was the Zugs, for one sees their weird eyes long before one can discern their small, slippery brown outlines. Out they swarmed from hidden burrow and honeycomb tree, till the whole dim-litten region was alive with them. Some of the wilder ones brushed Carter unpleasantly, and one even nipped loathsomely at his ear. But these lawless spirits were soon restrained by their elders. The Council of Sages, recognizing the visitor, offered a gourd of fermented sap from a haunted tree unlike the others, which had grown from a seed dropped down by someone on the moon. And as Carter drank it ceremoniously, a very strange colloquy began. The Zugs did not, unfortunately, know where the peak of Kadath lies, nor could they even say whether the cold waste is in our dream world or in another. Rumors of the Great Ones came equally from all points and one might only say that they were likelier to be seen on high mountain peaks than in valleys, since on such peaks they dance reminiscently when the moon is above and the clouds beneath. Then one very ancient Zug recalled a thing unheard of by the others, and said that in Ulthar, beyond the river sky, there still lingered the last copy of those inconceivably old narcotic manuscripts made by waking men in forgotten boreal kingdoms and born into the land of dreams when the hairy cannibal Nofkes overcame many templed Olathoe and slew all the heroes of the land of Lomar. Those manuscripts, he said, told much of the gods, and besides, in Ulthar, there were men who had seen the signs of the gods, and even one old priest who had scaled a great mountain to behold them dancing by moonlight. He had failed, though his companion had succeeded, and perished namelessly. 
So Randolph Carter thanked the Zugs, who fluttered amicably, and gave him another gourd of moon tree wine to take with him, and set out through the phosphorescent wood for the other side, where the rushing sky flows down from the slopes of Larian, and Hatheg and Nir and Ulthar dot the plain. Behind him, furtive and unseen, crept several of the curious Zugs, for they wished to learn what might befall him and bear back the legend to their people. The vast oaks grew thicker as he pushed on beyond the village, and he looked sharply for a certain spot where they would thin somewhat, standing quite dead or dying among the unnaturally dense fungi and rotting mold and mushy logs of their fallen brothers. There he would turn sharply aside, for at that spot a mighty slab of stone rests on the forest floor, and those who have dared approach it say that it bears an iron ring three feet wide. Remembering the archaic circle of great mossy rocks and what it was possibly set up for, the Zugs do not pause near that expansive slab with its huge ring, for they realize that all which is forgotten need not necessarily be dead, and they would not like to see the slab rise slowly and deliberately. Carter detoured at the proper place and heard behind him the frightened fluttering of some of the more timid Zugs. He had known they would follow him, so he was not disturbed, for one grows accustomed to the anomalies of these prying creatures. It was twilight when he came to the edge of the wood, and the strengthening glow told him it was the twilight of morning. Over fertile plains rolling down to the sky, he saw the smoke of cottage chimneys, and on every hand were the hedges and plowed fields and thatched roofs of a peaceful land. Once he stopped at a farmhouse well for a cup of water, and all the dogs barked affrightedly at the inconspicuous zugs that crept through the grass behind. At another house, where people were stirring, he asked questions about the gods and whether they danced often upon Larion. But the farmer and his wife would only make the elder sign and tell him the way to Nir and Ulthar. At noon he walked through the one broad high street of Nier, which he had once visited, and which marked his farthest former travels in this direction. And soon afterward he came to the great stone bridge across the sky, into whose central piece the masons had sealed a living human sacrifice when they built it thirteen hundred years before. Once on the other side, the frequent presence of cats, who all arched their backs at the trailing Zugs, revealed the near neighborhood of Ulthar. For in Ulthar, according to an ancient and significant law, no man may kill a cat. Very pleasant were the suburbs of Ulthar, with their little green cottages and neatly fenced farms, and still pleasanter was the quaint town itself, with its old peaked roofs and overhanging upper stories and numberless chimney pots and narrow hill streets 
where one can see old cobbles, wherever the graceful cats afford space enough. Carter, the cats being somewhat dispersed by the half-seen Zugs, picked his way directly to the modest temple of the Elder Ones, where the priests and old records were said to be. And once within that venerable circular tower of ivied stone which crowns Ulthar's highest hill, he sought out the patriarch Atal, who had been up the forbidden peak Hathegkia in the stony desert, and had come down again alive. Atal, seated on an ivory dais in a festooned shrine at the very top of the temple, was fully three centuries old, but still very keen of mind and memory. From him, Carter learned many things about the gods, but mainly that they are indeed only Earth's gods, ruling feebly our own dreamland and having no power or habitation elsewhere. They might, Atal said, heed a man's prayer if in good humor, but one must not think of climbing to their onyx stronghold atop Kadath in the cold waste. It was lucky that no man knew where Kadath towers, for the fruit of ascending it would be very grave. Atal's companion, Bani the Wise, had been drawn screaming into the sky for climbing merely the known peak of Hathagkia. With unknown Kadath, if ever found, matters would be much worse. For although Earth's gods may sometimes be surpassed by a wise mortal, they are protected by the other gods from outside, whom it is better not to discuss. At least twice in the world's history, the other gods set their seal upon Earth's primal granite. Once in antediluvian times, as guessed from a drawing in those parts of the narcotic manuscripts too ancient to be read, and once on Hathegkia, when Bani the Wise tried to see Earth's gods dancing by moonlight. So Atal said, it would be much better to let all gods alone, except in tactful prayers. Carter, though disappointed by Atal's discouraging advice, and by the meager help to be found in the narcotic manuscripts and the seven cryptical books of San, did not wholly despair. First, he questioned the old priest about that marvelous sunset city seen from the railed terrace, thinking that perhaps he might find it without the god's aid. But Atal could tell him nothing. Probably, Atal said, the place belonged to his especial dream world and not to the general land of vision that many know. And conceivably, it might be on another planet. In that case, Earth's gods could not guide him, if they would. But this was not likely, since the stopping of the dream showed pretty clearly that it was something the Great Ones wished to hide from him. Then Carter did a wicked thing, offering his guileless host so many drafts of the moon wine which the Zugs had given him 
that the old man became irresponsibly talkative. Robbed of his reserve, poor Atal babbled freely of forbidden things, telling of a great image reported by travelers as carved on the solid rock of the mountain Ngranik, on the Isle of Oriab in the Southern Sea, and hinting that it may be a likeness with which Earth's gods once wrought of their own features in the days when they danced by moonlight on that mountain. And he hiccuped likewise that the figures of that image are very strange, so that one might easily recognize them, and that they are sure signs of the authentic grace of the gods. Now, the use of all this in finding the gods became at once apparent to Carter. It is known that in disguise, the younger among the great ones often espouse the daughters of men, so that around the borders of the cold waste wherein stands Kadath, the peasants must all bear their blood. This being so, the way to find that waste must be to see the stone face on Granik and mark the features. Then, having noted them with care, to search for such features among living men. Where they are plainest and thickest, there must the gods dwell nearest. And whatever stony waste lies back of the villages in that place must be that wherein stands Kadath. Much of the great ones might be learnt in such regions, and those with their blood might inherit little memories useful to a seeker. They might not know their parentage, for the gods so dislike to be known among men that none can be found who has seen their faces wittingly, a thing which Carter realized even as he sought to scale Kadath. But they would have queer lofty thoughts misunderstood by their fellows, and would sing of far places and gardens so unlike any known even in the dreamland that common folk would call them fools. And from all this, one could perhaps learn old secrets of Kadath, or gain hints of the marvelous sunset city which the gods held secret, and more. One might, in certain cases, seize some well-loved child of a god as a hostage, or even capture some young god himself, disguised and dwelling among men with a comely peasant maiden for his bride. Atal, however, did not know how to find Ngranek on its Isle of Oriab, and recommended that Carter follow the singing sky under its bridges down to the southern sea, where no burgess of Ulthar has ever been, but whence the merchants come in boats or with long caravans of mules and two-wheeled carts. There is a great city there, Dilathleen. But in Ulthar, its reputation is bad because of the black three-banked galleys that sail to it with rubies from no clearly named shore. The traders that come from those galleys to deal with the jewelers are human, or nearly so, but the rowers are never beheld and it is not thought wholesome in Ulthar 
that merchants should trade with black ships from unknown places whose rowers cannot be exhibited. By the time he had given this information, Atal was very drowsy, and Carter laid him gently on a couch of inlaid ebony and gathered his long beard decorously on his chest. As he turned to go, he observed that no suppressed fluttering followed him, and wondered why the Zugs had become so lax in their curious pursuit. Then he noticed all the sleek, complacent cats of Ulthar licking their chops with unusual gusto, and recalled the spitting and caterwauling he had faintly heard in lower parts of the temple while absorbed in the old priest's conversation. He recalled, too, the evilly hungry way in which an especially impudent young Zug had regarded a small black kitten in the cobbled street outside. And because he loved nothing on earth more than small black kittens, he stooped and petted the sleek cats of Ulthar as they licked their chops and did not mourn because those inquisitive Zugs would escort him no farther. It was sunset now, so Carter stopped at an ancient inn on a steep little street overlooking the lower town. And as he went out on the balcony of his room and gazed down at the sea of red-tiled roofs and cobbled ways and the pleasant fields beyond, all mellow and magical in the slanted light. He swore that Ulthar would be a very likely place to dwell in always, were not the memory of a greater sunset city ever goading one onward toward unknown perils. Then twilight fell, and the pink walls of the plastered gables turned violet and mystic, and little yellow lights floated up one by one from old lattice windows. And sweet bells pealed in the temple tower above, and the first star winked softly above the meadows across the sky. With the night came song, and Carter nodded as the lutenists praised ancient days from beyond the filigreed balconies and tessellated courts of simple Ulthar. And there might have been sweetness, even in the voices of Ulthar's many cats, but that they were mostly heavy and silent from strange feasting. Some of them stole off to those cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and which villagers say are on the moon's dark side, whither the cats leap from tall housetops. But one small black kitten crept upstairs and sprang in Carter's lap to purr and play, and curled up near his feet when he lay down at last on the little couch whose pillows were stuffed with fragrant, drowsy herbs. Part Two In the morning, Carter joined a caravan of merchants bound for Dilath Lean with the spun wool of Ulthar and the cabbages of Ulthar's busy farms. And for six days they rode with tinkling bells on the smooth road beside the sky, stopping some nights at the ends of little quaint fishing towns, 
and on other nights, camping under the stars while snatches of boatmen's songs came from the placid river. The country was very beautiful, with green hedges and groves, and picturesque peaked cottages and octagonal windmills. On the seventh day, a blur of smoke rose on the horizon ahead, and then the tall black towers of Dilathleen, which is built mostly of basalt. Dilathleen, with its thin angular towers, looks in the distance like a bit of the giant's causeway, and its streets are dark and uninviting. There are many dismal sea taverns near the myriad wharves, and all the town is thronged with the strange seamen of every land on earth, and of a few which are said to be not on earth. Carter questioned the oddly robed men of that city about the peak of Ngranek on the Isle of Oriab, and found that they knew of it well. Ships came from Baharna on that island, one being due to return thither in only a month, and Ngranek is but two days' zebra ride from that port. But few had seen the stone face of the god because it is on a very difficult side of Ngranek, which overlooks only sheer crags and a valley of sinister lava. Once the gods were angered with men on that side and spoke of the matter to the other gods. It was hard to get this information from the traders and sailors in Dilathleen's sea taverns because they mostly preferred to whisper of the black galleys. One of them was due in a week with rubies from its unknown shore and the townsfolk dreaded to see it dock. The mouths of the men who came from it to trade were too wide, and the way their turbans were humped up in two points above their foreheads was in especially bad taste. And their shoes were the shortest and queerest ever seen in the Six Kingdoms. But worst of all was the matter of the unseen rowers those three banks of oars moved too briskly and accurately and vigorously to be comfortable, and it was not right for a ship to stay in port for weeks while the merchants traded, yet to give no glimpse of its crew. It was not fair to the tavern keepers of Dilathleen or to the grocers and butchers either, for not a scrap of provisions was ever sent aboard. The merchants took only gold and stout black slaves from Parg over across the river. That was all they ever took, those unpleasantly featured merchants and their unseen rowers. Never anything from the butchers and grocers, but only gold and the fat black men of Parg whom they bought by the pound and the odors from those galleys which the south wind blew in from the wharves are not to be described. Only by constantly smoking strong thagweed could even the hardiest denizen of the old sea taverns bear them. Dilathleen would never have tolerated the black galleys had such rubies been obtainable elsewhere. 
but no mine in all Earth's dreamland was known to produce their like. Of these things, Thylathleen's cosmopolitan folk chiefly gossiped, whilst Carter waited patiently for the ship from Baharna, which might bear him to the isle whereon Carvin and Granik towers lofty and barren. Meanwhile, he did not fail to seek through the haunts of far travelers for any tales they might have concerning Karath in the cold waste, or a marvelous city of marble walls and silver fountains seen below terraces in the sunset. Of these things, however, he learned nothing, though he once thought that a certain old slant-eyed merchant looked queerly intelligent when the cold waste was spoken of. This man was reputed to trade with the horrible stone villages on the icy desert plateau of Leng, which no healthy folk visit, and whose evil fires are seen at night from afar. He was even rumored to have dealt with that high priest not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery. That such a person might well have had nibbling traffic with such beings as may conceivably dwell in the cold waste was not to be doubted. But Carter soon found that it was no use questioning him. Then the black galley slipped into the harbor past the basalt whale and the tall lighthouse, silent and alien, and with a strange stench that the south wind drove into the town. Uneasiness rustled through the taverns along that waterfront, and after a while the dark, wide-mouthed merchants with the humped turbans and short feet clumped stealthily ashore to seek the bazaars of the jewelers. Carter observed them closely and disliked them more the longer he looked at them. Then he saw them drive the stout black men of Parg up the gangplank, grunting and sweating into that singular galley, and wondered in what lands, or if in any lands at all, those fat pathetic creatures might be destined to serve. And on the third evening of that galley's stay, one of the uncomfortable merchants spoke to him, smirking sinfully and hinting of what he had heard in the taverns of Carter's quest. He appeared to have knowledge too secret for public telling, and although the sound of his voice was unbearably hateful, Carter felt that the lore of so far a traveler must not be overlooked. He bade him, therefore, be his guest in locked chambers above, and drew out the last of the Zug's moon wine to loosen his tongue. The strange merchant drank heavily, but smirked, unchanged by the draft. Then he drew forth a curious bottle with wine of his own, and Carter saw that the bottle was a single hollowed ruby, grotesquely carved in patterns too fabulous to be comprehended. He offered his wine to his host, and though Carter took only the least sip, 
He felt the dizziness of space and the fever of unimagined jungles. All the while, the guest had been smiling more and more broadly, and as Carter slipped into blankness, the last thing he saw was that dark, odious face convulsed with evil laughter and something quite unspeakable, where one of the two frontal puffs of that orange turban had become disarranged with the shakings of that epileptic mirth. Carter next had consciousness amidst horrible odors beneath a tent-like awning on the deck of a ship, with the marvelous coasts of the southern sea flying by in unnatural swiftness. He was not chained, but three of the dark sardonic merchants stood grinning nearby, and the sight of those humps in their turbans made him almost as faint as did the stench that filtered up through the sinister hatches. He saw slip past him the glorious lands and cities of which a fellow dreamer of earth, a lighthouse keeper in ancient Kingsport, had often discoursed in the old days, and recognized the templed terraces of Zack, abode of forgotten dreams, the spires of infamous Thalarian, that Daemon city of a thousand wonders where the Eidolon Lathi reigns, the charnel gardens of Zura, land of pleasures unattained, and the twin headlands of crystal meeting above in a resplendent arch, which guard the harbor of Sona Nile, blessed land of fancy. Past all these gorgeous lands, the malodorous ship flew unwholesomely, urged by the abnormal strokes of those unseen rowers below. And before the day was done, Carter saw that the steersman could have no other goal than the basalt pillars of the west, beyond which simple folks say splendid Cathuria lies, but which wise dreamers well know are the gates of a monstrous cataract, wherein the oceans of Earth's dreamland drop wholly to abysmal nothingness and shoot through the empty spaces toward other worlds and other stars and the awful voids outside the ordered universe where the daemon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in chaos amid pounding and piping and the hellish dancing of the other gods, blind, voiceless, tenebrous, and mindless, with their soul and messenger, Nyarlathotep. Meanwhile, the three sardonic merchants would give no word of their intent. Although Carter well knew that they must be leagued with those who wished to hold him from his quest. It is understood in the land of dream that the other gods have many agents moving among men. And all these agents, whether wholly human or slightly less than human, are eager to work the will of those blind and mindless things in return for the favor of their hideous soul and messenger, the crawling chaos, Nyarlathotep. So Carter inferred that the merchants of the humped turbans, hearing of his daring search for the great ones in their castle of Kadath, had decided to take him away and deliver him to Nyarlathotep, 
for whatever nameless bounty might be offered for such a prize. What might be the land of those merchants in our known universe or in the eldritch spaces outside, Carter could not guess. Nor could he imagine at what hellish trysting place they would meet the crawling chaos to give him up and claim their reward. He knew, however, that no beings as nearly human as these would dare approach the ultimate knighted throne of the daemon Azathoth in the formless central void. At the set of sun, the merchants licked their excessively wide lips and glared hungrily, and one of them went below and returned from some hidden and offensive cabin with a pot and a basket of plates. Then they squatted close together beneath the awning and ate the smoking meat that was passed around. But when they gave Carter a portion, he found something very terrible in the size and shape of it, so that he turned even paler than before and cast that portion into the sea when no eye was upon him. And again he thought of those unseen rowers beneath and of the suspicious nourishment from which their far too mechanical strength was derived. It was dark when the galley passed betwixt the basalt pillars of the west and the sound of the ultimate cataract swelled portentous from ahead. And the spray of that cataract rose to obscure the stars and the deck grew damp and the vessel reeled in the surging current of the brink. Then, with a queer whistle and plunge, the leap was taken, and Carter felt the terrors of nightmare as earth fell away and the great boat shot silent and comet-like into planetary space. Never before had he known what shapeless black things lurk and caper and flounder all through the aether, leering and grinning at such voyagers as may pass and sometimes feeling about with slimy paws when some moving object excites their curiosity. These are the nameless larvae of the other gods, and like them are blind and without mind, and possessed of singular hungers and thirsts. But that offensive galley did not aim as far as Carter had feared, for he soon saw that the helmsman was steering a course directly for the moon. The moon was a crescent shining larger and larger as they approached it and showing its singular craters and peaks uncomfortably. The ship made for the edge and it soon became clear that its destination was that secret and mysterious side which is always turned away from earth and which no fully human person, save perhaps the dreamer Snireth Ko, has ever beheld. The close aspect of the moon as the galley drew near proved very disturbing to Carter, and he did not like the size and shape of the ruins which crumbled here and there. The dead temples on the mountains were so placed that they could have glorified no suitable or wholesome gods. And in the symmetries of the broken columns, 
there seemed to be some dark and inner meaning which did not invite solution. And what the structure and proportions of the olden worshippers could have been, Carter steadily refused to conjecture. When the ship rounded the edge and sailed over those lands unseen by man, there appeared in the queer landscape certain signs of life, and Carter saw many low, broad, round cottages in fields of grotesque whitish fungi. He noticed that these cottages had no windows and thought that their shape suggested the huts of the Eskimos. Then he glimpsed the oily waves of a sluggish sea and knew that the voyage was once more to be by water, or at least through some liquid. The galley struck the surface with a peculiar sound, and the odd elastic way the waves received it was very perplexing to Carter. They now slid along at great speed, once passing and hailing another galley of kindred form, but generally seeing nothing but that curious sea and a sky that was black and star-strewn, even though the sun shone scorchingly in it. There presently rose ahead the jagged hills of a leprous-looking coast, and Carter saw the thick, unpleasant gray towers of a city. The way they leaned and bent, the manner in which they were clustered, and the fact that they had no windows at all was very disturbing to the prisoner, and he bitterly mourned the folly which had made him sip the curious wine of that merchant with the humped turban. As the coast drew nearer, and the hideous stench of that city grew stronger, he saw upon the jagged hills many forests, some of whose trees he recognized as akin to that solitary moon tree in the enchanted wood of earth, from whose sap the small brown zugs ferment their curious wine. Carter could now distinguish moving figures on the noisome wharves ahead, and the better he saw them, the worse he began to fear and detest them. For they were not men at all, or even approximately men, but great grayish-white slippery things which could expand and contract at will, and whose principal shape, though it often changed, was that of a sort of toad without any eyes, but with a curious vibrating mass of short pink tentacles on the end of its blunt, vague snout. These objects were waddling busily about the wharves, moving bales and crates and boxes with preternatural strength, and now and then hopping on or off some anchored galley with long oars in their forepaws. And now and then one would appear driving a herd of clumping slaves, which indeed were approximate human beings with wide mouths like those merchants who traded in Dilath Lean. Only these herds, being without turbans or shoes or clothing, did not seem so very human after all. Some of the slaves, 
fatter ones whom a sort of overseer would pinch experimentally, were unloaded from ships and nailed in crates which workers pushed into the low warehouses or loaded on great lumbering vans. Once a van was hitched and driven off, and the fabulous thing which drew it was such that Carter gasped, even after having seen the other monstrosities of that hateful place. Now and then, a small herd of slaves dressed and turbaned like the dark merchants would be driven aboard a galley, followed by a great crew of the slippery toad things as officers, navigators, and rowers. And Carter saw that the almost human creatures were reserved for the more ignominious kinds of servitude, which required no strength, such as steering and cooking, fetching and carrying, and bargaining with men on the earth or other planets where they traded. These creatures must have been convenient on earth, for they were truly not unlike men when dressed and carefully shod and turbaned, and could haggle in the shops of men without embarrassment or curious explanations. But most of them, unless lean or ill-favored, were unclothed and packed in crates and drawn off in lumbering lorries by fabulous things. Occasionally, other beings were unloaded and crated, some very like these semi-humans, some not so similar, and some not similar at all. And he wondered if any of the poor stout black men of Parg were left to be unloaded and crated and shipped inland in those obnoxious drays. When the galley landed at a greasy-looking quay of spongy rock, a nightmare horde of toad things wiggled out of the hatches, and two of them seized Carter and dragged him ashore. The smell and aspect of that city are beyond telling, and Carter held only scattered images of the tiled streets and black doorways and endless precipices of gray vertical walls without windows. At length, he was dragged within a low doorway and made to climb infinite steps in pitch darkness. It was apparently all one to the toad things, whether it were light or dark. The odor of the place was intolerable, and when Carter was locked into a chamber and left alone, he scarcely had strength to crawl around and ascertain its form and dimensions. It was circular and about twenty feet across. From then on, time ceased to exist. At intervals, food was pushed in, but Carter would not touch it. What his fate would be, he did not know. But he felt that he was held for the coming of that frightful soul and messenger of infinity's other gods. The crawling chaos, Nyarlathoptep, Finally, after an unguessed span of hours or days, the great stone door swung wide again, and Carter was shoved down the stairs and out into the red-litten lights of that fearsome city. It was night on the moon, and all through the town were stationed slaves bearing torches. 
in a detestable square, a sort of procession was formed. Ten of the toad things and twenty-four almost human torchbearers, eleven on either side and one each before and behind. Carter was placed in the middle of the line, five toad things ahead and five behind, and one almost human torchbearer on e either side of him. Certain of the toad things produced disgustingly carven flutes of ivory and made loathsome sounds. To that hellish piping, the column advanced out of the tiled streets and into nighted plains of obscene fungi, soon commencing to climb one of the lower and more gradual hills that lay behind the city. That on some frightful slope or blasphemous plateau the crawling chaos waited, Carter could not doubt, and he wished that the suspense might soon be over. The whining of those impious flutes was shocking, and he would have given worlds for some even half-normal sound. But these toad things had no voices, and the slaves did not talk. Then, through that star-specked darkness, there did come a normal sound. It rolled from the higher hills, and from all the jagged peaks around it was caught up and echoed in a swelling pandemoniac chorus. It was the midnight yell of the cat, and Carter knew at last that the old village folk were right when they made low guesses about the cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and to which the elders among cats repair by stealth nocturnally, springing from high housetops. Verily, it is to the moon's dark side that they go to leap and gamble on the hills and converse with ancient shadows. And here, amidst that column of feeded things, Carter heard their homely, friendly cry and thought of the steep roofs and warm hearths and little white lighted windows of home. Now, much of the speech of cats was known to Randolph Carter, and in this far terrible place he uttered the cry that was suitable. But that he need not have done, for even as his lips opened he heard the chorus wax and draw nearer, and saw swift shadows against the stars as small graceful shapes leaped from hill to hill in gathering legions. The call of the clan had been given, and before the foul procession had time even to be frightened, a cloud of smothering fur and a phalanx of murderous claws were tidily and tempestuously upon it. The flutes stopped, and there were shrieks in the night. Dying almost humans screamed, and cats spit and yowled and roared. But the toad things made never a sound as their stinking green ichor oozed fatally upon that porous earth with the obscene fungi. It was a stupendous sight while the torches lasted, and Carter had never before seen so many cats. Black, gray, and white, yellow, tiger, and mixed, common, Persian, and Manx, Tibetan, Angora, and Egyptian. All were there in the fury of battle, 
and there hovered over them some trace of that profound and inviolate sanctity which made their goddess great in the temples of Bubastis. They would leap seven strong at the throat of an almost human or the pink tentacled snout of a toad thing and drag it down savagely to the fungus plain where myriads of their fellows would surge over it and into it with the frenzied claws and teeth of a divine battle fury. Carter had seized a torch from a stricken slave, but was soon overborne by the surging waves of his loyal defenders. Then he lay in the utter blackness, hearing the clangor of war and the shouts of the victors, and feeling the soft paws of his friends as they rushed to and fro over him in the fray. At last, awe and exhaustion closed his eyes. And when he opened them again, it was upon a strange scene. The great shining disk of the earth, thirteen times greater than that of the moon as we see it, had risen with floods of weird light over the lunar landscape. And across all those leagues of wild plateau and ragged crest, there squatted one endless sea of cats in orderly array. Circle on circle they reached, and two or three leaders out of the ranks were licking his face and purring to him consolingly. Of the dead slaves and toad things, there were not many signs, but Carter thought he saw one bone a little way off in the open space between him and the warriors. Carter now spoke with the leaders in the soft language of cats, and learned that his ancient friendship with the species was well known and often spoken of in the places where cats congregate. He had not been unmarked in Ulthar when he passed through, and the sleek old cats had remembered how he patted them after they had attended to the hungry Zugs who looked evilly at a small black kitten. And they recalled, too, how he had welcomed the very little kitten who came to see him at the inn, and how he had given it a saucer of rich cream in the morning before he left. The grandfather of that very little kitten was the leader of the army now assembled, for he had seen the evil procession from a far hill and recognized the prisoner as a sworn friend of his kind on earth and in the land of dream. A yowl now came from the farther peak, and the old leader paused abruptly in his conversation. It was one of the army's outposts, stationed on the highest of the mountains, to watch the one foe which Earth's cats fear. The very large and peculiar cats from Saturn, who for some reason have not been oblivious of the charm of our moon's dark side. They are leagued by treaty with the evil toad things and are notoriously hostile to our earthly cats. So that at this juncture, a meeting would have been a somewhat grave matter. After a brief consultation of generals, the cats rose and assumed a closer formation, crowding protectingly around Carter and preparing to take the great leap through space back to the housetops of our earth and its dreamland. The old 
field marshal advised Carter to let himself be borne along smoothly and passively in the massed ranks of furry leapers, and told him how to spring when the rest sprang, and land gracefully when the rest landed. He also offered to deposit him in any spot he desired, and Carter decided on the city of Dilathleen, whence the black galley had set out, for he wished to sail thence for Oriab and the carven crest Granic, and also to warn the people of the city to have no more traffic with black galleys, if indeed that traffic could be tactfully and judiciously broken off. Then, upon a signal, the cats all leapt gracefully with their friend packed securely in their midst, while in a black cave on an unhallowed summit of the moon mountains still vainly waited the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep. The leap of the cats through space was very swift, and being surrounded by his companions, Carter did not see this time the great black shapelessnesses that lurked and caper and flounder in the abyss. Before he fully realized what had happened, he was back in his familiar room at the inn at Dilathleen, and the stealthy, friendly cats were pouring out of the window in streams. The old leader from Ulthar was the last to leave, and as Carter shook his paw, he said he would be able to get home by cockcrow. When dawn came, Carter went downstairs and learned that a week had elapsed since his capture and leaving. There was still nearly a fortnight to wait for the ship bound toward Oriab, and during that time he said what he could against the black galleys and their infamous ways. Most of the townsfolk believed him, yet so fond were the jewelers of great rubies that none would wholly promise to cease trafficking with the wide-mouthed merchants. If aught of evil ever befalls Dilathleen through such traffic, it will not be his fault. End of Part 2 Part 3 In about a week, the desiderate ship put in by the black whale and tall lighthouse, and Carter was glad to see that she was a bark of wholesome men, with painted sides and yellow lateen sails, and a gray captain in silken robes. Her cargo was the fragrant resin of Oriab's inner groves, and the delicate pottery baked by the artists of Baharna and the strange little figures carved from Ngranek's ancient lava. For this they were paid in the wool of Ulthar and the iridescent textiles of Hatheg and the ivory that the black men carve across the river in Parg. Carter made arrangements with the captain to go to Baharna and was told that the voyage would take ten days. And during his week of waiting, he talked much with that captain of Ngranek, and was told that very few had seen the carven face thereon, but that most travelers are content to learn its legends from old people and lava-gatherers and image-makers in Baharna, and afterwards say in their far homes that they have indeed beheld it. 
The captain was not even sure that any person now living had beheld that carven face. For the wrong side of Ingranic is very difficult and barren and sinister, and there are rumors of caves near the peak wherein dwell the night gaunts. But the captain did not wish to say just what a night gaunt might be like, since such cattle are known to haunt most persistently the dreams of those who think too often of them. Then Carter asked that captain about unknown Kadath and the cold waste, and the marvelous Sunset City. But of these, the good man truly could tell nothing. Carter sailed out of Dilath Lean one early morning when the tide turned and saw the first rays of sunrise on the thin, angular towers of that dismal basalt town. And for two days they sailed eastward in sight of green coasts, and saw often the pleasant fishing towns that climbed up steeply with their red roofs and chimney pots from old dreaming wharves and beaches where nets lay drying. But on the third day, they turned sharply south, where the roll of water was stronger, and soon passed from sight of any land. On the fifth day, the sailors were nervous, but the captain apologized for their fears, saying that the ship was about to pass over the weedy walls and broken columns of a sunken city too old for memory, and that when the water was clear, one could see so many moving shadows in that deep place that simple folk disliked it. He admitted, moreover, that many ships had been lost in that part of the sea, having been hailed when quite close to it, but never seen again. That night the moon was very bright, and one could see a great way down in the water. There was so little wind that the ship could not move much, and the ocean was very calm. Looking over the rail, Carter saw, many fathoms deep, the dome of the great temple, and in front of it, an avenue of unnatural sphinxes leading to what was once a public square. Dolphins sported merrily in and out of the ruins, and porpoises reveled clumsily here and there, sometimes coming to the surface and leaping clear out of the sea. As the ship drifted on a little, the floor of the ocean rose in hills, and one could clearly mark the lines of ancient climbing streets and the washed-down walls of myriad little houses. Then the suburbs appeared, and finally a great lone building on a hill, of simpler architecture than the other structures and in much better repair. It was dark and low, and covered four sides of a square, with a tower at each corner, a paved court in the center, and small, curious round windows all over it. Probably it was of basalt, though weeds draped the greater part, and such was its lonely and impressive place on that far hill that it may have been a temple or a monastery. Some phosphorescent fish inside it gave the small round windows an aspect of shining, 
and Carter did not blame the sailors much for their fears. Then, by the watery moonlight, he noticed an odd high monolith in the middle of that central court and saw that something was tied to it. And when, after getting a telescope from the captain's cabin, he saw that that bound thing was a sailor in the silk robes of Oriab, head downward and without any eyes, he was glad that a rising breeze soon took the ship ahead to more healthy parts of the sea. The next day, they spoke with a ship with violet sails, bound for Tsar, in the land of forgotten dreams, with bulbs of strange-colored lilies for cargo. And on the evening of the eleventh day, they came in sight of the Isle of Oriab, with Ngranek rising jagged and snow-crowned in the distance. Oriab is a very great isle, and its port of Baharna, a mighty city. The wharves of Baharna are of Porphyry, and the city rises in great stone terraces behind them, having streets of steps that are frequently arched over by buildings and the bridges between buildings. There is a great canal which goes under the whole city in a tunnel with granite gates and leads to the inland lake of Yath, on whose farther shore are the vast clay-brick ruins of a primal city whose name is not remembered. As the ship drew into the harbor at evening, the twin beacons Thon and Thal gleamed a welcome, and in all the million windows of Baharna's terraces, mellow lights peeped out quietly and gradually, as the stars peep out overhead in the dusk, till that steep and climbing seaport became a glittering constellation hung between the stars of heaven and the reflections of those stars in the still harbor. The captain, after landing, made Carter a guest in his own small house on the shores of Yath, where the rear of the town slopes down to it. And his wife and servants brought strange, toothsome foods for the traveler's delight. And in the days after that, Carter asked for rumors and legends of Ngranek in all the taverns and public places where lava gatherers and image makers meet, but could find no one who had been up the higher slopes or seen the carven face. Ngranek was a hard mountain with only an accursed valley behind it. And besides, one could never depend on the certainty that night gaunts are altogether fabulous. When the captain sailed back to Dilathleen, Carter took quarters in an ancient tavern opening on an alley of steps in the original part of town, which is built of brick and resembles the ruins of Yath's farther shore. Here he laid his plans for the ascent of Ungranic and correlated all that he had learned from the lava gatherers about the roads thither. The keeper of the tavern was a very old man and had heard so many legends that he was a great help. He even took Carter to an upper room in that ancient house and showed him a crude picture which a traveler had scratched on the clay wall 
In the old days, when men were bolder and less reluctant to visit Ngranek's higher slopes. The old tavern keeper's great-grandfather had heard from his great-grandfather that the traveler who scratched that picture had climbed Ngranek and seen the carven face, here drawing it for others to behold. But Carter had very great doubts, since the large rough features on the wall were hasty and careless, and wholly overshadowed by a crowd of little companion shapes in the worst possible taste, with horns and wings and claws and curling tails. At last, having gained all the information he was likely to gain in the taverns and public places of Baharna, Carter hired a zebra and set out one morning on the road by Yath's shore for those inland parts wherein towers stony and granic. On his right were rolling hills and pleasant orchards and neat little stone farmhouses, and he was much reminded of those fertile fields that flanked the sky. By evening, he was near the nameless ancient ruins on Yath's farther shore, and though old lava-gatherers had warned him not to camp there at night, he tethered his zebra to a curious pillar before a crumbling wall and laid his blanket in a sheltered corner beneath some carvings whose meaning none could decipher. Around him he wrapped another blanket, for the nights are cold in Oriab. And when upon waking once he thought he felt the wings of some insect brushing his face, he covered his head altogether, and slept in peace till roused by the Magah birds in distant resin groves. The sun had just come up over the great slope whereon leagues of primal brick foundations and worn walls and occasional cracked pillars and pedestals stretched down desolate to the shore of Yath, and Carter looked about for his tethered zebra. Great was his dismay to see that docile beast stretched prostrate beside the curious pillar to which it had been tied, and still greater was he vexed on finding that the steed was quite dead with its blood all sucked away through a singular wound in its throat. His pack had been disturbed, and several shiny knick-knacks taken away, and all round on the dusty soil were great webbed footprints for which he could not in any way account. The legends and warnings of lava-gatherers occurred to him, and he thought of what had brushed his face in the night. Then he shouldered his pack and strode on toward Ngranek, though not without a shiver when he saw close to him as the highway passed through the ruins a great gaping arch low in the wall of an old temple with steps leading down into darkness farther than he could peer. His course now lay uphill through wilder and partly wooded country and he saw only the huts of charcoal burners and the camp of those who gathered resin from the groves. The whole air was fragrant with balsam, and all the Magah birds sang blithely as they flashed their seven colors in the sun. Near sunset 
he came on a new camp of lava gatherers, returning with laden sacks from Ngranek's lower slopes. And here he also camped, listening to the songs and tales of the men, and overhearing what they whispered about a companion they had lost. He had climbed high to reach a mass of fine lava above him, and at nightfall did not return to his fellows. When they looked for him the next day, they found only his turban, nor was there any sign on the crags below that he had fallen. They did not search any more, because the old man among them said it would be of no use. No one ever found what the night gaunts took, though those beasts themselves were so uncertain as to be almost fabulous. Carter asked them if night gaunts sucked blood and liked shiny things and left webbed footprints, but they all shook their heads negatively and seemed frightened at his making such an inquiry. When he saw how taciturn they had become, he asked them no more, but went to sleep in his blanket. The next day, he rose with the lava gatherers and exchanged farewells as they rode west and he rode east on a zebra he bought of them. Their older men gave him blessings and warnings and told him he had better not climb too high on Granik. But while he thanked them heartily, he was in no wise dissuaded. For still did he feel that he must find the gods on unknown Kata and win from them away to that haunting and marvelous city in the sunset. By noon, after a long uphill ride, he came upon some abandoned bricked villages of the hill people who had once dwelt thus close to Ngranik and carved images from its smooth lava. Here they had dwelt till the days of the old tavern keeper's grandfather, but about that time they felt that their presence was disliked. Their homes had crept even up the mountain slope, and the higher they built, the more people they would miss when the sun rose. At last they decided it would be better to leave altogether since things were sometimes glimpsed in the darkness which no one could interpret favorably. So, in the end, all of them went down to the sea and dwelt in Baharna, inhabiting a very old quarter and teaching their sons the old art of image-making, which to this day they carry on. It was from these children of the exiled hill people that Carter had heard the best tales about Ngranik when searching through Baharna's ancient taverns. All this time, the great gaunt side of Ngranik was looming up higher and higher as Carter approached it. There were sparse trees on the lower slopes and feeble shrubs above them, and then the bare, hideous rock rose spectral into the sky, to mix with frost and ice and eternal snow. Carter could see the rifts and ruggedness of that somber stone, and did not welcome the prospect of climbing it. In places, there were solid streams of lava, 
and scoriac heaps that littered slopes and ledges. Ninety eons ago, before even the gods had danced upon its pointed peak, that mountain had spoken with fire and roared with the voices of the inner thunders. Now it towered, all silent and sinister, bearing on the hidden side that secret titan image whereof rumor told. And there were caves in that mountain, which might be empty and alone with elder darkness, or might, if legend spoke truly, hold horrors of a form not to be surmised. The ground sloped upward to the foot of Ungranic, thinly covered with scrub oaks and ash trees, and strewn with bits of rock, lava, and ancient cinder. There were the charred embers of many camps where the lava gatherers were wont to stop, and several rude altars which they had built, either to propitiate the Great Ones, or to ward off what they dreamed of in Ngranic's high passes and labyrinthine caves. At evening, Carter reached the farthermost pile of embers and camped for the night, tethering his zebra to a sapling and wrapping himself well in his blankets before going to sleep. And all through the night, a vunith howled distantly from the shore of some hidden pool, but Carter felt no fear of that amphibious terror, since he had been told with certainty that not one of them dares even approach the slope of Ungranic. In the clear sunshine of morning, Carter began the long ascent, taking his zebra as far as that useful beast could go, but tying it to a stunted ash tree when the floor of the thin wood became too steep. Thereafter, he scrambled up alone, first through the forest with its ruins of old villages in overgrown clearings, and then over the tough grass where anemic shrubs grew here and there. He regretted coming clear of the trees, since the slope was very precipitous and the whole thing rather dizzying. At length, he began to discern all the countryside spread out beneath him whenever he looked about. The deserted huts of the image-makers, the groves of resin trees and the camps of those who gathered from them, the woods where prismatic magas nest and sing, and even a hint, very far away, of the shores of Yath and of those forbidding ancient ruins whose name is forgotten. He found it best not to look around and kept on climbing and climbing till the shrubs became very sparse and there was often nothing but the tough grass to cling to. Then the soil became meager with great patches of bare rock cropping out and now and then the nest of a condor in a crevice. Finally, there was nothing at all but the bare rock and had it not been very rough and weathered he could scarcely have ascended farther. Knobs, ledges, and pinnacles, however, helped greatly, and it was cheering to see occasionally the sign of some lava gatherer scratched clumsily in the friable stone, 
and know that wholesome human creatures had been there before him. After a certain height, the presence of man was further shown by handholds and footholds hewn where they were needed, and by little quarries and excavations where some choice vein or stream of lava had been found. In one place, a narrow ledge had been chopped artificially to an especially rich deposit far to the right of the main line of ascent. Once or twice, Carter dared to look around and was almost stunned by the spread of landscape below. All the island betwixt him and the coast lay open to his sight, with Baharna's stone terraces and the smoke of its chimneys mystical in the distance. And beyond that, the illimitable southern sea with all its curious secrets. Thus far there had been much winding around the mountain, so that the farther and carven side was still hidden. Carter now saw a ledge running upward and to the left, which seemed to head the way he wished, and this course he took in the hope that it might prove continuous. After ten minutes he saw that it was indeed no cul-de-sac, but that it led steeply on in an arc which would, unless suddenly interrupted or deflected, bring him after a few hours climbing to that unknown southern slope overlooking the desolate crags and the accursed valley of lava. As new country came into view below him, he saw that it was bleaker and wilder than those seaward lands he had traversed. The mountain side, too, was somewhat different, being here pierced by curious cracks and caves not found on the straighter route he had left. Some of these were above him and some beneath him, all opening on sheerly perpendicular cliffs and wholly unreachable by the feet of man. The air was very cold now, but so hard was the climbing that he did not mind it. Only the increasing rarity bothered him, and he thought that perhaps it was this which had turned the heads of the other travelers and excited those absurd tales of night gaunts, whereby they explained the loss of such climbers as fell from these perilous paths. He was not much impressed by travelers' tales, but had a good curved scimitar in case of any trouble. All lesser thoughts were lost in the wish to see that carven face which might set him on the track of the gods atop unknown Karath. At last, in the fearsome iciness of upper space, he came round fully to the hidden side of Ingranic and saw in infinite gulfs below him the lesser crags and sterile abysses of lava which marked olden wrath of the Great Ones. There was unfolded, too, a vast expanse of country to the south. But it was a desert land, without fair fields or cottage chimneys, and seemed to have no ending. No trace of the sea was visible on this side, for Oriab is a great island. Black caverns and odd crevices were still numerous on the sheer vertical cliffs but none of them was accessible to a climber. There now loomed aloft a great 
beetling mass which hampered the upward view. And Carter was for a moment shaken with doubt, lest it prove impassable. Poised in windy insecurity miles above Earth, with only space and death on one side and only slippery walls of rock on the other, he knew for a moment the fear that makes men shun in Granik's hidden side. He could not turn round, yet the sun was already low. If there were no way aloft, the night would find him crouching there still, and the dawn would not find him at all. But there was a way, and he saw it in due season. Only a very expert dreamer could have used those imperceptible footholds, yet to Carter they were sufficient. Surmounting now the outward-hanging rock, he found the slope above much easier than that below, since a great glacier's melting had left a generous space with loam and ledges. To the left, a precipice dropped straight from unknown heights to unknown depths, with a cave's dark mouth just out of reach above him. Elsewhere, however, the mountain slanted back strongly, and even gave him space to lean and rest. He felt from the chill that he must be near the snow line and looked up to see what glittering pinnacles might be shining in that late ruddy sunlight. Surely enough, there was the snow, uncounted thousands of feet above, and below it, a great beetling crag like that he had just climbed hanging there forever in bold outline. And when he saw that crag, he gasped and cried out aloud and clutched at the jagged rock in awe. For the titan bulge had not stayed as Earth's dawn had shaped it, but gleamed red and stupendous in the sunset with the carved and polished features of a god. Stern and terrible shone that face that the sunset lit with fire. How vast it was, no mind can ever measure, but Carter knew at once that man never could have fashioned it. It was a god, chiseled by the hands of the gods, and it looked down haughtily and majestic upon the seeker. Rumor had said it was strange and not to be mistaken, and Carter saw that it was indeed so. For those long, narrow eyes and long-lobed ears and that thin nose and pointed chin all spoke of a race that is not of men, but of gods. He clung overawed in that lofty and perilous eerie, even though it was this which he had expected and come to find. For there is, in a god's face, more of marvel than prediction can tell. And when that face is vaster than a great temple, and seen looking downward at sunset in the siptic silences of that upper world from whose dark lava it was divinely hewn of old, the marvel is so strong that none may escape it. Here, too, was the added marvel of recognition, 
For although he had planned to search all dreamland over for those whose likeness to this face might mark them as the gods' children, he now knew that he need not do so. Certainly the great face carven on that mountain was of no strange sort, but the kin of such as he had seen often in the taverns of the seaport Celepheus, which lays in Uthnargai, beyond the Tanarian hills, and is ruled over by that King Karanes, whom Carter once knew in waking life. Every year sailors with such a face came in dark ships from the north to trade their onyx for the carved jade and spun gold and little red singing birds of Celepheus, and it was clear that these could be no others than the half-gods he sought. Where they dwelt, there must the cold waste lie close, and within it unknown Kadath and its onyx castle for the great ones. So to Celepheus he must go, far distant from the Isle of Oriab, and in such parts as would take him back to Dilath Lean and up the sky to the bridge by near, and again into the ch enchanted wood of the Zugs, whence the way would bend northward through the garden lands by Ukranos to the gilded spires of Thran, where he might find a galleon bound over the Serenarian Sea. But dusk was now thick, and the great carven face looked down even sterner in shadow. Perched on that ledge, night found the seeker, and in the blackness he might neither go down nor go up, but only stand and cling and shiver in that narrow place till the day came, praying to keep awake lest sleep loose his hold and send him down the dizzy miles of air to the crags and sharp rocks of the accursed valley. The stars came out, but save for them there was only black nothingness in his eyes, nothingness leagued with death, against whose beckoning he might do no more than cling to the rocks and lean back away from an unseen brink. The last thing of earth that he saw in the gloaming was a condor soaring close to the westward precipice beside him and darting screaming away when it came near the cave whose mouth yawned just out of reach. Suddenly, Without a warning sound in the dark, Carter felt his curved scimitar drawn stealthily out of his belt by some unseen hand. Then he heard it clatter down over the rocks below. And between him and the Milky Way, he thought he saw a very terrible outline of something noxiously thin and horned and tailed and bat-winged. Other things, too, had begun to blot out patches of stars west of him, as if a flock of vague entities were flapping thickly and silently out of that inaccessible cave in the face of the precipice. Then a sort of cold, rubbery arm seized his neck, and something else seized his feet, and he was lifted inconsiderably up and swung about in space. Another minute, and the stars were gone, and Carter knew that the night gaunts had got him. They bore him breathless into that cliffside cavern and through monstrous labyrinths beyond, 
when he struggled, as at first he did by instinct. They tickled him with deliberation. They made no sound at all themselves, and even their membranous wings were silent. They were frightfully cold and damp and slippery, and their paws kneaded one and detestably. Soon they were plunging hideously downward through inconceivable abysses in a whirling, giddying, sickening rush of dank, tomb-like air. And Carter felt they were shooting into the ultimate vortex of shrieking and demonic madness. He screamed again and again, but whenever he did so, the black paws tickled him with greater subtlety. Then he saw a sort of gray phosphorescence about, and guessed they were coming even to that inner world of subterrene horror, of which dim legends tell, and which is litten only by the pale death fire wherewith reeks the ghoulish air and the primal mists of the pits at Earth's core. At last, far below him, he saw faint lines of gray and ominous pinnacles, which he knew must be the fabled peaks of Throck. Awful and sinister they stand in the haunted disk of sunless and eternal depths, higher than man may reckon, and guarding terrible valleys where the doles crawl and burrow nastily. But Carter preferred to look at them than at his captors, which were indeed shocking and uncouth black things with smooth, oily, whale-like surfaces, unpleasant horns that curved inward toward each other, bat wings whose beating made no sound, ugly prehensile paws, and barbed tails that lashed needlessly and disquietingly. And worst of all, they never spoke nor laughed, and never smiled because they had no faces at all to smile with, but only a suggestive blankness where a face ought to be. All they ever did was clutch and fly and tickle. That was the way of night gaunts. As the band flew lower, the peaks of Throck rose gray and towering on all sides, and one saw clearly that nothing lived on that austere and impressive granite of the endless twilight. At still lower levels, the death fires in the air gave out, and one met only the primal blackness of the void, save aloft where the thin peaks stood out goblin-like. Soon the peaks were very far away, and nothing about but great rushing winds with the dark dankness of neithermost grottos in them. Then, in the end, the night gaunts landed on a floor of unseen things which felt like layers of bones and left Carter all alone in that black valley. To bring him thither was the duty of the night gaunts that guard Ngranic, and this done, they flapped away silently. When Carter tried to trace their flight, he could not, since even the peaks of Throck had faded out of sight. There was nothing anywhere but blackness and horror and silence and bones. End of part three.
Part 4 Now Carter knew from a certain source that he was in the Vale of Noth, where Crawl and Burrow, the enormous doles, but he did not know what to expect because no one has ever seen a dole or even guessed what such a thing may be like. Doles are known only by dim rumor from the rustling they make amongst mountains of bones and the slimy touch they have when they wriggle past one. They cannot be seen because they creep only in the dark. Carter did not wish to meet a dole so listened intently for any sound in the unknown depths of bones about him. Even in this fearsome place, he had a plan and an objective, for whispers of Noth were not unknown to one with whom he had talked much in the old days. In brief, it seemed fairly likely that this was the spot into which all the ghouls of the waking world cast the refuse of their feastings and that if he but had good luck, he might stumble upon that mighty crag taller even than Throck's peaks, which marks the end of their domain. Showers of bones would tell him where to look, and once found, he could call to a ghoul to let down a ladder. For strange to say, he had a very singular link with these terrible creatures. A man he had known in Boston, a painter of strange pictures with a secret studio in an ancient and unhallowed alley near a graveyard, had actually made friends with the ghouls and had taught him to understand the simpler part of their disgusting meeping and glibbering. This man had vanished at last, and Carter was not sure but that he might find him now and use for the first time in dreamland that faraway English of his dim waking life. In any case, he felt he could persuade a ghoul to guide him out of Noth, and it would be better to meet a ghoul, which one can see, than a dole, which one cannot see. So Carter walked in the dark, and ran when he thought he heard something among the bones underfoot. Once he bumped into a stony slope and knew it must be the base of one of Throck's peaks. Then at last he heard a monstrous rattling and clatter which reached far up in the air and became sure he had come nigh the crag of the ghouls. He was not sure he could be heard from this valley miles below, but realized that the inner world has strange laws. As he pondered, he was struck by a flying bone so heavy that it must have been a skull, and therefore realizing his nearness to the fateful crag, he sent up, as best he might, that meeping cry, which is the cry of the ghoul. Sound travels slowly, so it was some time before he heard an answering glibber, but it came at last, and before long he was told that a rope ladder would be lowered. The wait for this was very tense, since there was no telling what might not have been stirred up among those bones by his shouting. Indeed, it was not long before he actually did hear a vague rustling afar off. As this thoughtfully approached, he became more and more uncomfortable, for
for he did not wish to move away from the spot where the ladder would come. Finally, the tension grew almost unbearable, and he was about to flee in panic when the thud of something on the newly heaped bones nearby drew his notice from the other sound. It was the ladder, and after a minute of groping he had it taut in his hands. But the other sound did not cease, and followed him even as he climbed. He had gone fully five feet from the ground when the rattling beneath waxed emphatic, and was a good ten feet up when something swayed the ladder from below. At a height which must have been fifteen or twenty feet, he felt his whole side brushed by a great slippery length which grew alternately convex and concave with wriggling. And hereafter, he climbed desperately to escape the unendurable nuzzling of that loathsome and overfed dole whose form no man might see. For hours he climbed with aching and blistered hands, seeing again the gray death fire and Throck's uncomfortable pinnacles. At last he discerned above him the projecting edge of the great crag of the ghouls, whose vertical side he could not glimpse. And hours later he saw a curious face peering over it as a gargoyle peers over a parapet of Notre Dame. This almost made him lose his hold through faintness, but a moment later he was himself again. For his vanished friend, Richard Pickman, had once introduced him to a ghoul, and he knew well their canine faces and slumping forms and unmentionable idiosyncrasies. So he had himself well under control when that hideous thing pulled him out of the dizzy emptiness over the edge of the crag and did not scream at the partly consumed refuse heaped at one side or at the squatting circles of ghouls who gnawed and watched curiously. He was now on a dim-litten plain whose sole topographical features were great boulders and the entrances of burrows. The ghouls were, in general, respectful, even if one did attempt to pinch him, while several others eyed his leanness speculatively. Through patient glibbering, he made inquiries regarding his vanished friend, and found he had become a ghoul of some prominence in abysses nearer the waking world. A greenish elderly ghoul offered to conduct him to Pickman's present habitation, so despite the natural loathing, he followed the creature into a capacious burrow and crawled after him for hours in the blackness of rank mold. They emerged on a dim plain strewn with singular relics of earth. Old gravestones, broken urns, and grotesque fragments of monuments. And Carter realized with some emotion that he was probably nearer the waking world than at any other time since he had gone down the seven hundred steps from the cavern of flame to the gate of deeper slumber. There. On a tombstone of 1768, stolen from the granary burying ground in Boston, sat a ghoul which was once the artist Richard Upton Pickman. It was naked and rubbery, and had acquired so much of the ghoulish physiognomy 
that its human origin was already obscure. But it still remembered a little English and was able to converse with Carter in grunts and monosyllables, helped out now and then by the glibbering of ghouls. When it learned that Carter wished to get to the Enchanted Wood and from there to the city Selefais in Uthnargai beyond the Tenarian Hills, it seemed rather doubtful. For these ghouls of the waking world do no business in the graveyards of Upper Dreamland, leaving that to the red-footed womps that are spawned in dead cities. And many things intervene betwixt their gulf and the enchanted wood, including the terrible kingdom of the Gugs. The Gugs, hairy and gigantic, once reared stone circles in that wood and made strange sacrifices to the other gods and the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep. Until one night, an abomination of theirs reached the ears of Earth's gods and they were banished to caverns below. Only a great trapdoor of stone with an iron ring connects the abyss of the Earth ghouls with the enchanted wood. And this the Gugs are afraid to open because of a curse. That a mortal dreamer could traverse their cavern realm and leave by that door is inconceivable. For mortal dreamers were their former food, and they have legends of the toothsomeness of such dreamers, even though banishment has restricted their diet to the ghasts those repulsive beings which die in the light, and which live in the vaults of Zin, and leap on long hind legs like kangaroos. So the ghoul that was Pikmin advised Carter either to leave the abyss at Sarkamond, that deserted city in the valley below Leng, where black nitrous stairways guarded by winged diorote lions lead down from dreamland to the lower gulfs, or to return through a churchyard to the waking world and begin the quest anew down the seventy steps of light slumber to the cavern of flame and the seven hundred steps to the gate of dreeper slumber and the enchanted wood. This, however, did not suit the seeker, for he knew nothing of the way from Leng to Uthnargai and was likewise reluctant to awake lest he forget all he had so far gained in this dream. It was disastrous to his quest to forget the august and celestial faces of those seamen from the north who traded onyx in Selephias, and who, being the sons of gods, must point the way to the cold waste and Kadath, where the great ones dwell. After much persuasion, the ghoul consented to guide his guest inside the great wall of the Gug's kingdom. There was one chance that Carter might be able to steal through that twilight realm of circular stone towers at an hour when the giants would be all gorged and snoring indoors, and reach the central tower with the sign of Koth upon it, which has the stairs leading up to that stone trapdoor in the enchanted wood. Pikmin even consented to lend three ghouls to help with a tombstone lever in raising the stone door. 
for of ghouls, the gugs are somewhat afraid, and they often flee from their own colossal graveyards when they see them feasting there. He also advised Carter to disguise as a ghoul himself, shaving the beard he had allowed to grow, for ghouls have none, wallowing naked in the mold to get the correct surface, and loping in the usual slumping way, with his clothing carried in a bundle, as if it were a choice morsel from a tomb. They would reach the city of Gugs, which is coterminous with the whole kingdom, through the proper burrows, emerging in a cemetery not far from the stair containing Tower of Koth. They must beware, however, of a large cave near the cemetery, for this is the mouth of the vaults of Zin, and the vindictive ghasts are always on watch there murderously for those denizens of the upper abyss who hunt and prey on them. The ghasts try to come out when the gugs sleep, and they attack ghouls as readily as gugs, for they cannot discriminate. They are very primitive and eat one another. The gugs have a sentry at a narrow place in the vaults of Zin, but he is often drowsy and is sometimes surprised by a party of ghasts. Though ghasts cannot live in real light, they can endure the gray twilight of the abyss for hours. So at length, Carter crawled through endless burrows with three helpful ghouls bearing the slate gravestone of Colonel Nehemiah Derby, Obit 1719, from the Charter Street burying ground in Salem. When they came again into open twilight, they were in a forest of vast lichened monoliths reaching nearly as high as the eye could see and forming the modest gravestones of the Gugs. On the right of the hole out of which they wriggled and seen through aisles of monoliths was a stupendous vista of cyclopean round towers mounting up illimitable into the gray air of inner earth. This was the great city of the Gugs, whose doorways are thirty feet high. Ghouls come here often, for a buried Gug will feed a community for almost a year. And even with the added peril, it is better to burrow for Gugs than to bother with the graves of men. Carter now understood the occasional titan bones he had felt beneath him in the Valley of Noth. Straight ahead, and just outside the cemetery, rose a sheer perpendicular cliff at whose base an immense and forbidding cavern yawned. This the ghouls told Carter to avoid as much as possible, since it was the entrance to the unhallowed vaults of Zin, where gugs hunt ghasts in the darkness. And truly that warning was soon well justified, for the moment a ghoul began to creep toward the towers to see if the hour of the gug's resting had been rightly timed, there glowed in the gloom of that great cavern's mouth first one pair of yellowish-red eyes and then another, implying that the gugs were one century less, and that ghasts have indeed an excellent sharpness of sp smell. So the ghoul returned to the burrow, and motioned his companions to be silent. 
it was best to leave the guests to their own devices, and there was a possibility that they might soon withdraw, since they must naturally be rather tired after coping with a gug sentry in the black vaults. After a moment, something about the size of a small horse hopped out into the gray twilight, and Carter turned sick at the aspect of that scabrous and unwholesome beast, whose face is so curiously human despite the absence of a nose, a forehead, and other important particulars. Presently, three other ghasts hopped out to join their fellow, and a ghoul glibbered softly at Carter that their absence of battle scars was a bad sign. It proved that they had not fought the Gug sentry at all, but had merely slipped past him as he slept, so that their strength and savagery were still unimpaired, and would remain so till they had found and disposed of a victim. It was very unpleasant to see those filthy and disproportioned animals, which soon numbered about fifteen, grubbing about and making their kangaroo leaps in the gray twilight where titan towers and monoliths arose. But it was still more unpleasant when they spoke among themselves in the coughing gutturals of ghasts. And yet, horrible as they were, they were not so horrible as what presently came out of the cave after them with disconcerting suddenness. It was a paw fully two feet and a half across, and equipped with formidable talons. After it came another paw, and after that a great black-furred arm to which both of the paws were attached by short forearms. Then two pink eyes shone, and the head of the awakened Gug sentry, large as a barrel, wobbled into view. The eyes jutted two inches from each side, shaded by bony protuberances overgrown with coarse hairs. But the head was chiefly terrible because of the mouth. That mouth had great yellow fangs and ran from the top to the bottom of the head, opening vertically instead of horizontally. But before that unfortunate Gug could emerge from the cave and rise to his full twenty feet, the vindictive ghasts were upon him. Carter feared for a moment that he would give an alarm and arouse all his kin, till a ghoul softly glibbered that Gugs have no voice but talk by means of facial expression. The battle which then ensued was truly a frightful one. From all sides, the venomous ghasts rushed feverishly at the creeping gug, nipping and tearing with their muzzles, and mauling murderously with their hard-pointed hooves. All the time they coughed excitedly, screaming when the great vertical mouth of the gug would occasionally bite into one of their number, so that the noise of the combat would surely have aroused the sleeping city, had not the weakening of the sentry begun to transfer the action farther and farther within the cavern. As it was, the tumult soon receded altogether from sight in the blackness, with only occasional evil echoes to mark its continuance.
Then the most alert of the ghouls gave the signal for all to advance, and Carter followed the loping three out of the forest of monoliths and into the dark noisome streets of that awful city whose rounded towers of cyclopean stone soared up beyond the sight. Silently they shambled over that rough rock pavement, hearing with disgust the abominable muffled snortings from great black doorways which marked the slumber of the gugs. Apprehensive of the ending of the rest hour, the ghouls set a somewhat rapid pace. But even so, the journey was no brief one, for distances in that town of giants are on a great scale. At last, however, they came to a somewhat open space before a tower even vaster than the rest, above whose colossal doorway was fixed a monstrous symbol in bas-relief, which made one shudder without knowing its meaning. This was the central tower with the sign of Koth, and those huge stone steps just visible through the dusk within were the beginning of the great flight leading to Upper Dreamland and the Enchanted Wood. There now began a climb of interminable length in utter blackness, made almost impossible by the monstrous size of the steps, which were fashioned for gugs, and were therefore nearly a yard high. Of their number, Carter could form no just estimate, for he soon became so worn out that the tireless and elastic ghouls were forced to aid him. All through the endless climb there lurked the peril of detection and pursuit, for though no gug dares lift the stone door to the forest because of the Great One's curse. There are no such restraints concerning the tower and the steps, and escaped ghasts are often chased even to the very top. So sharp are the ears of gugs that the bare feet and hands of the climbers might readily be heard when the city awoke, and it would, of course, take but little time for the striding giants accustomed from their ghast hunts in the vaults of Zin to seeing without light, to overtake their smaller and slower quarry on those cyclopean steps. It was very depressing to reflect that the silent pursuing gugs would not be heard at all, but would come very suddenly and shockingly in the dark upon the climbers. Nor could the traditional fear of gugs for ghouls be depended upon in that peculiar place where the advantages lay so heavily with the gugs. There was also some peril from the furtive and venomous ghasts, which frequently hopped up, up onto the tower during the sleep hour of the gugs. If the gugs slept long and the ghasts returned soon from their deed in the cavern, the scent of the climbers might easily be picked up by those loathsome and ill-disposed things, in which case it would almost be better to be eaten by a gug. Then, after eons of climbing, there came a cough from the darkness above, and matters assumed a very grave and unexpected turn. It was clear that a ghast, or perhaps even more, had strayed into that tower before the coming of Carter and his guides, and it was equally clear that this peril was very close. After a breathless second, 
the leading ghoul pushed Carter to the wall and arranged his kinfolk in the best possible way, with the old slate tombstone raised for a crushing blow whenever the enemy might come in sight. Ghouls can see in the dark, so the party was not as badly off as Carter would have been alone. In another moment, the clatter of hooves revealed the downward hopping of at least one beast, and the slab-bearing ghouls poised their weapon for a desperate blow. Presently, two yellowish-red eyes flashed into view, and the panting of the ghast became audible above its clattering. As it hopped down to the step above the ghouls, they wielded the ancient gravestone with prodigious force so that there was only a wheeze and a choking before the victim collapsed in a noxious heap. There seemed to be only this one animal, and after a moment of listening, the ghouls tapped Carter as a signal to proceed again. As before, they were obliged to aid him, and he was glad to leave that place of carnage where the ghast's uncouth remains sprawled invisible in the blackness. At last the ghouls brought their companion to a halt, and feeling above him, Carter realized that the great stone trapdoor was reached at last. To open so vast a thing completely was not to be thought of, but the ghouls hoped to get it up just enough to slip the gravestone under as a prop and permit Carter to escape through the crack. They themselves planned to descend again and return through the city of the Gugs, since their elusiveness was great. And they did not know the way overland to Spectral Sarcomond with its lion-guarded gate to the abyss. Mighty was the straining of those three ghouls at the stone of the door above them, and Carter helped push with as much strength as he had. They judged the edge next to the top of the staircase to be the right one, and to this they bent all the force of their disreputably nourished muscles. After a few moments, a crack of light appeared, and Carter, to whom that task had been entrusted, slipped the end of the old gravestone in the aperture. There now ensued a mighty heaving, but progress was very slow, and they had, of course, to return to their first position every time they failed to turn the slab and prop the portal open. Suddenly, their desperation was magnified a thousandfold by a sound on the steps below them. It was only the thumping and rattling of the slain ghast's hooved body as it rolled down to lower levels. But of all the possible causes of that body's dislodgement and rolling, none was in the least reassuring. Therefore, knowing the ways of Gugs, the ghouls set to with something of a frenzy, and in a surprisingly short time had the door so high that they were able to hold it still whilst Carter turned the slab and left a generous opening. They now helped Carter through, letting him climb up to their rubbery shoulders and later guiding his feet as he clutched at the blessed soul of the upper dreamland outside. Another second and they were through themselves, knocking away the gravestone and closing the great trap door while a panting became audible beneath. Because of the Great One's curse, 
no Gug might ever emerge from that portal. So with a deep relief and sense of repose, Carter lay quietly on the thick, grotesque fungi of the enchanted wood, while his guides squatted near in the manner that ghouls rest. Weird as was that enchanted wood through which he had fared so long ago, it was verily a haven and a delight after those gulfs he had now left behind. There was no living denizen about, for Zug shunned the mysterious door in fear, and Carter at once consulted with his ghouls about their future course. To return through the tower they no longer dared, and the waking world did not appeal to them when they learned that they must pass the priests Nasht and Kamantha in the Cavern of Flame. So, at length, they decided to return through Sarkomand and its gate of the abyss, though of how to get there they knew nothing. Carter recalls that it lies in the valley below Leng, and recalled likewise that he had seen in Dilathleen a sinister slant-eyed old merchant reputed to trade on Leng. Therefore, he advised the ghouls to seek out Dilathleen, crossing the fields to Nier and the sky, and following the river to its mouth. This they at once resolved to do, and lost no time in loping off, since the thickening of the dusk promised a full night ahead for travel. And Carter shook the paws of those repulsive beasts, thanking them for their help, and sending his gratitude to the beast which once was Pikmin, but could not help sighing with pleasure when they left. For a ghoul is a ghoul, and at best an unpleasant companion to man. After that, Carter sought a forest pool and cleansed himself of the mud of nether earth, thereupon reassuming the clothes he had so carefully carried. End of Part 4 Part 5 It was now night in that redoubtable wood of monstrous trees, but because of the phosphorescence, one might travel as well as by day. Wherefore Carter set out upon the well-known route toward Selephias, in Uthnargai, beyond the Tenarian hills. And as he went, he thought of the zebra he had left tethered to an ash tree on Ngranek, in faraway Oriab so many eons ago, and wondered if any lava gatherers had fed and released it. And he wondered too if he would ever return to Baharna and pay for the zebra that was slain by night in those ancient ruins by Yath's shore, and if the old tavern keeper would remember him. Such were the thoughts that came to him in the air of the regained upper dreamland. But presently his progress was halted by a sound from a very large hollow tree. He had avoided the great circle of stones since he did not care to speak with Zugs just now, but it appeared from the singular fluttering in that huge tree that important councils were in session elsewhere. Upon drawing nearer, he made out the accents of a tense and heated discussion, 
and before long became conscious of matters which he viewed with the greatest concern. For a war on the cats was under debate in that sovereign assembly of Zugs. It all came from the loss of the party which had sneaked after Carter to Ulthar, and which the cats had justly punished for unsuitable intentions. The matter had long rankled, and now, or at least within a month, the marshaled Zugs were about to strike the whole feline tribe in a series of surprise attacks, taking individual cats or groups of cats unawares, and giving not even the myriad cats of Ulthar a proper chance to drill and mobilize. This was the plan of the Zugs, and Carter saw that he must foil it before leaving upon his mighty quest. Very quietly, therefore, did Randolph Carter steal to the edge of the wood and send the cry of the cat over the starlit fields. And a great grimalkin in a nearby cottage took up the burden and relayed it across leagues of rolling meadow to warriors large and small. Black, gray, tiger, white, yellow, and mixed. And it echoed through near and beyond the sky even into Ulthar, and Ulthar's numerous cats called in chorus and fell into a line of march. It was fortunate that the moon was not up, so that all the cats were on earth. Swiftly and silently leaping, they sprang from every hearth and housetop and poured in a great furry sea across the plains to the edge of the wood. Carter was there to greet them and the sight of shapely, wholesome cats was indeed good for his eyes after the things he had seen and walked with in the abyss. He was glad to see his venerable friend and one-time rescuer at the head of Ulthar's detachment, a collar of rank around his sleek neck and whiskers bristling at a martial angle. Better still, as a sub-lieutenant in that army was a brisk young fellow who proved to be none other than the very little kitten at the end to whom Carter had given a saucer of rich cream on that long-vanished morning in Ulthar. He was a strapping and promising cat now, and purred as he shook hands with his friend. His grandfather said he was doing very well in the army and that he might well expect a captaincy after one more campaign. Carter now outlined the peril of the cat tribe and was rewarded by deep-throated purrs of gratitude from all sides. Consulting with the generals, he prepared a plan of instant action which involved marching at once upon the Zug Council and other known strongholds of the Zugs, forestalling their surprise attacks and forcing them to terms before the mobilization of their army of invasion. Thereupon, without a moment's loss, that great ocean of cats flooded the enchanted wood and surged around the council tree in the great stone circle. Flutterings rose to panic pitch as the enemy saw the newcomers, and there was very little resistance among the furtive and curious brown zooks. They saw that they were beaten in advance, and turned from thoughts of vengeance to thoughts of present self-preservation. 
Half the cats now seated themselves in a circular formation with the captured Zugs in the center, leaving open a lane down which were marched the additional captives rounded up by the other cats in other parts of the wood. Terms were discussed at length, Carter acting as interpreter, and it was decided that the Zugs might remain a free tribe on condition of rendering to the cats a large tribute of grouse, quail, and pheasants from the less fabulous parts of the forest. Twelve young Zugs of noble families were taken as hostages to be kept in the Temple of Cats at Ulthar, and the victors made it plain that any disappearances of cats on the borders of the Zug domain would be followed by consequences highly disastrous to Zugs. These matters disposed of, the assembled cats broke ranks and permitted the Zugs to slink off one by one to their respective homes, which they hastened to do with many a sullen backward glance. The old cat general now offered Carter an escort through the forest to whatever border he wished to reach, deeming it likely that the Zugs would harbor dire resentment against him for the frustration of their warlike enterprise. This offer he welcomed with gratitude, not only for the safety it afforded, but because he liked the graceful companionship of cats. So in the midst of a pleasant and playful regiment, relaxed after the successful performance of its duty, Randolph Carter walked with dignity through that enchanted and phosphorescent wood of Titan trees, talking of his quest with the old general and his grandson, whilst others of the band indulged in fantastic gambols or chased fallen leaves the wind drove among the fungi of that primeval floor. And the old cat said that he had heard much of unknown Kadath in the cold waste, but did not know where it was. As for the marvelous Sunset City, he had not even heard of that, but would gladly relay to Carter anything he might later learn. He gave the seeker some passwords of great value among the cats of Dreamland, and commended him especially to the old chief of the cats in Celephias, whither he was bound. That old cat, already slightly known to Carter, was a dignified Maltese, and would prove highly influential in any transaction. It was dawn when they came to the proper edge of the wood and Carter bade his friends a reluctant farewell. The young sub-lieutenant he had met as a small kitten would have followed him had not the old general forbidden it, but that austere patriarch insisted that the path of duty lay with the tribe and the army. So Carter set out alone over the golden fields that stretched mysterious beside a willow-fringed river and the cats went back into the wood. Well did the traveler know those garden lands that lie betwixt the wood of the Serenarian Sea, and blithely did he follow the singing river Ukianos that marked his course. The sun rose higher over gentle slopes of grove and lawn 
and heightened the colors of the thousand flowers that starred each knoll and dingle. A blessed haze lies upon all this region, wherein is held a little more of the sunlight than other places hold, and a little more of the summer's humming music of birds and bees, so that men walk through it as through a fairy place, and feel greater joy and wonder than they ever afterward remember. By noon, Carter reached the jasper terraces of Kiran, which slope down to the river's edge and bear that temple of loveliness wherein the king of Ilek Vad comes from his far realm on the twilight sea once a year in a golden palanquin to pray to the god of Ukianos, who sang to him in youth when he dwelt in a cottage by its banks. All of Jasper is that temple, and covering an acre of ground with its walls and courts, its seven pinnacled towers, and its inner shrine where the river enters through hidden channels, and the gods sing softly in the night. Many times the moon hears strange music as it shines on those courts and terraces and pinnacles. But whether that music be the song of the god or the chant of the cryptical priests, none but the king of Ilekvad may say, for only he had entered the temple or seen the priests. Now, in the drowsiness of day, that carven and delicate fane was silent, and Carter heard only the murmur of the great stream and the hum of the birds and bees as he walked onward under the enchanted sun. All that afternoon the pilgrim wandered on through perfumed meadows and in the lee of gentle riverward hills bearing peaceful thatched cottages and the shrines of amiable gods carven from jasper or chrysoberyl. Sometimes he walked close to the bank of Ukianos and whispered to the sprightly and iridescent fish of that crystal stream. And at other times he paused amidst the whispering rushes and gazed at the great dark wood on the farther side whose trees came down clear to the water's edge. In former dreams he had seen quaint lumbering buopoths come shyly out of that wood to drink, but now he could not glimpse any. Once in a while he paused to watch a carnivorous fish catch a fishing bird, which it lured to the water by showing its tempting scales in the sun, and grasped by the beak with its enormous mouth as the winged hunter sought to dart down upon it. Toward evening he mounted a low grassy rise and saw before him, flaming in the sunset, the thousand gilded spires of Thrawn. Lofty beyond belief are the alabaster walls of that incredible city, sloping inward toward the top and wrought in one solid piece by what means no man knows, for they are more ancient than memory. Yet lofty as they are with their hundred gates and two hundred turrets, the clustered towers within, all white beneath their golden spires, are loftier still 
so that men on the plain around see them soaring into the sky, sometimes shining clear, sometimes caught at the top in tangles of cloud and mist, and sometimes clouded lower down, with their utmost pinnacles blazing free above the vapors. And where Thron's gates open on the river are great wharves of marble, with ornate galleons of fragrant cedar and calamander riding gently at anchor, and strange bearded sailors sitting on casks and bales with the hieroglyphs of far places. Landward, beyond the walls, lies the farm country, where small white cottages dream between little hills, and narrow roads with many stone bridges wind gracefully among streams and gardens. Down through this verdant land, Carter walked at evening and saw twilight float up from the river to the marvelous golden spires of Thron. And just at the hour of dusk he came to the southern gate and was stopped by a red-robed sentry till he had told three dreams beyond belief and proved himself a dreamer worthy to walk up Thron's steep mysterious streets and linger in the bazaars where the wares of the ornate galleons were sold. Then. Into that incredible city he walked, through a wall so thick that the gate was a tunnel. And thereafter, amidst curved and undulant ways winding deep and narrow between the heavenward towers, lights shone through grated and balconied windows, and the sound of lutes and pipes stole timid from inner courts where marble fountains bubbled. Carter knew his way and edged down through darker streets to the river, where, at an old sea tavern, he found the captains and seamen he had known in myriad other dreams. There he bought his passage to Selephias on a great green galleon, and there he stopped for the night, after speaking gravely to the venerable cat of that inn, who blinked dozing before an enormous hearth, and dreamed of old wars and forgotten gods. End of The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath by H.P. Lovecraft Written a whole bunch of long time ago Appeared in a bunch of other stuff What do I look like? Wikipedia? People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos were normally a lot more helpful than this. PGTTCM.com, PGTTCM.podbean.com. Check us out at uh, darkmyths.org and a whole bunch of other great podcasts that you'll like. And thank you for listening. Look out for season eight, which is coming up really soon. And hope you're having a good summer. Thanks. Remember to stay squiggly, keep it weird. And stay safe. All right. Have a good one.